Okay, let's go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, or if you have a new King James, it says the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. God, tonight we come before you with a few requests on our hearts. First, I... I pray for all of our students who have moved on to colleges, moved off of this mountain, that you would be with them, guide their steps, and instruct them in your way. Lord, prepare them to be used for your glory. God, I want to also pray for our missionaries, Jesse and Mallory, as they go to Laos that you would protect them and bring a great um, reception to your gospel in that country. And Father, lastly, we want to lift up the souls of the Harvest Crusade, strengthen Greg glory, and open the ears and hearts to those who hear your word, Father. We want to see your kingdom include many more souls. And so do the same through our lives and through this group, Tree of Life. In Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. So we are in Matthew 26. And what we have in the stories, we're gently ascending to a climax. The minute Jesus pops on the scene, we're getting the story to its resolution. So in the beginning, God creates... And he creates a kingdom. If you might remember, Genesis 1 portrays God as a king who brings chaos into control and brings it into creation. And he does so with his word. Not with violence and sex like all the mythologies say creation came out of. He does it just with his elegant, majestic word. And that's what a king does. A king's word is the law of the land. And so what creation becomes is his kingdom. And God um, puts man in it to rule it, to run it inside of Eden. If creation's his kingdom, Eden is his throne. It's where he lives, it's where he dwells. Or throne and temple are one and the same. But Adam decides... I don't need to depend upon the life my king is giving me in this tree. I can eat from this tree, which promises that I will be my own king. The autonomous Adam. I can decide, the serpent tells me, to choose what's right and wrong for myself. And so Adam buys into that lie, becomes his own king, and we see that the whole creation kingdom becomes corrupt. Because it's no longer depending upon the king of creation. It's depending upon the king of selfish self. <laughs> Following the serpent's story. Adam exchanges God's story for one he can write himself. 
And from there, culture becomes corrupt. And God chooses a nation called Israel to go into the corrupt culture. He gives them a land. He says, go in there and restore this culture. I want you guys to be like the new Adam. You need to begin to cultivate creation to what I wanted it to be from the beginning. So don't buy into their ways, their philosophies, their gods. Don't borrow their culture. Form your own and let it expand and change them and the nations from there on. But like Adam... Israel doesn't depend on God's story. They write their own. They eat from the tree of knowledge yet again. And they become as corrupt as the nations around them because they, rather than cultivating a culture of restoration, they are borrowing culture from the nations around them. And they become just like them. And then Jesus comes. There's this big gaping question, what's going to happen? Adam and humanity have been kicked out of Eden. Israel's been kicked out of the new Eden that they were given. What's going to happen? There's this big vacuum, this big void, this big help in what's called the exile. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's answering these questions. He's bringing resolution to the problem of the story. So... We opened with his birth and we saw that Jesus was born to live your failed story so that you can live his successful story. And that when you do so, when you make that great swap, you can have fearless, a fearless mentality about what people think about you. Like Joseph. I will take Mary as my wife even if it means my reputation is thrown in the mud. Because I have exchanged my story for God's and I know who I belong. And then we saw Jesus come to his hometown, Nazareth, and announce to the people that you're all captives and deliverance has come in me. I'm here to lead an exodus to bring you all to the new Eden in me. And then last week we saw that Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, and this is where we're gently coming up the mountain of climax, he goes into the temple and announces what he really is. I am the temple now. It's been relocated in me. So all of you exiles, all of you people looking for resolution and restoration to this story that's incomplete, you're going to find it here in me. Because in me, you meet with God. God dwells in me. And I will give you restoration to what you were always meant to be. Living in God's story, in His presence, and forming His culture and life. Now, we're going to come to... Sounds like it's coming from above. That's weird. Now we come to a feast that Jesus has with his disciples. And this is where we start to really feel the climax coming. And I'm going to just say that tonight and the next few messages are... Of this story, they're like, if you follow, like, you know, a curve, like, Eden, sin, exiles, getting worse. And then Jesus has come, and it's getting better. And tonight, it's like here, and and the next four messages are going to be up, up, up. And it's just going to go from there. We're getting to the good stuff. And it starts with Jesus' announcing that in my story, there's going to be the sudden turn you didn't expect. But understand, my disciples... Through the, through the cup, the wine, and the bread, through these things, I'm telling you, it's going to be okay. Because this unexpected twist is in my hands. It's a part of my plan. 
what's that unexpected twist? The man of restoration who came to deliver Israel is going to die. Oops, didn't expect that. So as we come to this climax, important questions should start to be asked like this. Did Jesus know that he was going to die as he came to Jerusalem on his final trip, that last week of his life? Was it in his own knowledge that he was going to die? Or was it just his death just the result of unfortunate events that God ended up using for his good? Which which is it? Because um, there's a world divided here. It says, the death of Jesus was a tragic accident. He was stupid. He went up into the temple where no man's allowed to just barge in and say, I'm in control, throw people out. And that's why he died. He defied Rome and he defied the religious rulers and they conspired to kill him. But I reject that idea completely because of what we read right here in communion or the Last Supper, we call it, the Lord's Supper. Jesus answers the question for us. Did you intend to die or not? The answer is yes, because Jesus stood up at this meal and said, this cup is my blood. This bread, rip, is my body. And it's going to be given for the sins of many. I'm going to die. So when you come to this tragic twist in my story, understand this is me writing it. It's not a freak accident. This is planned. So we can know with confidence and assurance that Jesus understood in his own mind, I have come to die. I didn't lose. I wasn't a victim. I won. I was a victor. I accomplished what I came to do. So, that's what this Lord's Supper tells us. And it's neat that Jesus refers to the bread as my body. What does body imply? Body implies humanity. And the problem in our story started when humanity, when man, desired to be God. The serpent said, you will be like God if you eat from the tree of knowledge. So man said, I want to be like God. Let's do it. And the story fell apart from there. But the story finds its resolution when God becomes man. He reverses the role and saves man to himself. I want to be God, said Adam. Chaos. But God, I want to become man. Restoration. And that's what Jesus does here. That's what he's announcing. So tonight we look at common. You know, I don't have to introduce you guys to a whole lot of new because you're like familiar communion. We just took it. We take it every week here. So, but what I do want to do tonight is I hope to open the view of communion so that we expand our understanding of it to more than a little cracker and grape juice. Okay? If that's communion to you, no shame, because that's usually all the more we tell you. But tonight I want to tell you more. I'm going to tell you the full story of what's behind the little things <laughs> and why they're important. Because we've taken an epic moment and kind of reduced it to, yeah. Okay. So... Why did Jesus do this? Why did he institute 
the Lord's Supper. This is what I'm going to say all night. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for believers, for us, as a way of expressing the restoration that we have found in God. Okay? The Lord's Supper has been given to us to participate in so that we can find a way to express restoration. So when you take communion, it's an expression of the restoration that you have been given by God. You've been restored to Him. And we're expressing it as we take the communion elements. Okay? They're a restor- uh, They're an expression. There's nothing about them where it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus, as some churches say. It is an expression of what He's done for us. An expression to who? I hope by the end that the proposition will be clear that this expression is for the people on the outside. It's for the nations to know that there is a restoration we found in God that is real. And our taking and eating the Lord's Supper is our expression to the nations of our restoration. So how does the Lord's Supper express this restoration. Two words. This is what you're going to track with me tonight. Covenant and community. The Lord's Supper is about covenant and community. And through those two, we are expressing restoration to the world. So, covenant What does communion and covenant have in common? Well, has this. If you look at 2617, it says that on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where are we going to eat the Passover? This meal happens during Passover. Passover was the most important festival that Israel celebrated every year. And during Passover, what they did was they recalled when God powerfully delivered them from Egypt in an event called the Exodus. And it was through Moses, a man, through Moses, that God liberated them from their oppression and led them to restoration. Now, to guarantee that God wasn't going to bail on them, he, after the exodus, made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, do you guys recall that a covenant is a relationship that God initiates and dictates with us and then seals it with blood? In other words, I can't break this or else it's death on my name. (laughs) So he initiates and dictates a relationship with man and seals it with blood. Just put this in shorter terminology. A covenant is when God seeks to restore man to himself. He seeks this relationship. And that is what happened in the Exodus. They ended up having a relationship with God. Now, for hundreds of years, Israel celebrates this event. And every time they did it, they were always looking back at that moment with 
appreciation. Thank you, God, for delivering us. Appreciation. But by the time of Jesus, they not only looked back with appreciation, they looked forward with anticipation. Because this is their logic. If God came and visited us when we were oppressed and freed us, then then he's going to do it again in the future. Because we're oppressed. Rome is being a big bully, taking our freedom. We don't have a kingdom. God's going to come back and lead a new exodus. He's going to bring a new Moses and free us from this new Egyptian empire. So as they're celebrating Passover, they're not only appreciative, but they're anticipating something new to happen. And it is with that anticipation that Jesus stands up well, sits, whatever they're doing. He, he announces through this Passover meal that what you've been anticipating is now finding fulfillment here in my body. So he takes the cup and the bread, which are part of the Passover meal, and he relocates Passover in himself. This bread is now my body, and, and this wine is now my blood. Passover relocated in me. Which means the new exodus starts here. I will be your Moses. I will liberate not just you, 12 disciples. I will liberate all of humanity from the oppression of Satan's kingdom. And I will lead them all to restoration in the God that they have ignored. Jesus, the new exodus, right here in this meal. That's what he's saying. Eat of it. You're part of the new exodus. So, just like the new exodus, uh, just like the old exodus, they went with Moses and God gave them a covenant. Jesus leads the new exodus and he gives us a covenant. That's what Matthew says right here in verse 28. This cup is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins now if you guys got a new King James it says new covenant if you have any other translation it just says covenant Um, the difference is just this slight little difference in a text and it's not really a big deal because it's clear that Matthew has the new covenant in mind when he says the forgiveness of sins. What, what, what do you mean, Brandon? Why, why is that a big deal? Because when, when Jesus says, I've been doing this for the forgiveness of sins, he's alluding to Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant is located. Jeremiah 31 talks about, if you're a note taker, it's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It there talks about Israel was given a covenant by God. But Israel broke that covenant. And so God calls that there's going to be a time when I call all of Israel to myself and I make a new covenant. And I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And at the very end it says that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's the point of the new covenant. Is that Israel had this covenant broke it, that was the old one, and the new one is renewing that old one that they broke. God's forgiving the sin that broke that covenant, that sent them into exile, and he's now restoring them with a renewed covenant in Jesus as the new exodus. Freed people from Satan's kingdom. 
So this communion is announcing covenant. I am going to give my blood to seal this relationship. To forgive your sin. To bring you back. And this isn't just for Israel. This is for humanity. All who want to partake of me, he says. So that's what the new covenant is about. Restoration through the forgiving of sins. Because sin is the whole reason that exile exists. Adam, exiled from Eden because of sin. Israel, dispersed and exiled from their land because of sin. You, me, exiled from our future Eden, heaven, because of sin. But Jesus offers a feast that says, you come and partake. And I will give you a covenant which says your sins are no more. That distance is gone and you're restored. So how do we know that this is not just for Israel? But this is for everybody? From Isaiah 25 verse 6. (laughs) I kind of blew your guys' cover because Mike asked me last minute, do the communion minute. Okay, um... Well, I'll uh, pull from this message. So you guys already heard what Isaiah 25, 6 says. And if you didn't hear, this is what it says. And I will short term it for you. Essentially says that God is saying on this mountain, which is likely Jerusalem, that mountain, I am going to hold a feast for this all nations. It's not just the 12 disciples. It's not just Israel. It's all nations. All who want to come to this feast. He's holding it for them. But here's what it goes on to say in 25 verse 7. That the nations were veiled. They were covered. There was a blanket where they couldn't see this feast. They didn't want to come to this feast. And this veil, Isaiah says, was death. And it says when this feast happens, death will be swallowed up. It's like that blanket will be lifted off their eyes. And we can see it. We can come to the feast now. Jesus... Is not just offering grape juice and cracker. He's offering the feast of Passover, which has been relocated in him, leading the sinners into a new exodus to heaven, and saying, this is a feast. This is the feast for all nations. And I, because I'm going to die, this is my blood and body. I, through my death, am going to swallow up death. I'm going to roll that blanket up so that everybody... Can, tre- can pass over the exile gap and be restored to God. So as the disciples are eating that feast, they are eating the beginning of the kingdom feast of God, the restoration feast. And ever since, as we come, and I know it's been demoted from feast to snack, <laughs> we are partaking of that, big word here, eschatological feast, which means eternal end time feast. We're partaking of that. It has begun through communion, through the Lord's Supper. It has begun. But note this clarification. It's begun, but it has not yet come. Does that make sense? We're participating in that future feast, but that future feast is still future. It's yet going to come here. And, you know, I don't know if the Bible's being figurative about feasts because feasts are happy and good and plot, like plenty and prosperous. And that's all I'm saying. Or if it literally means it's me, this great, massive feast. Either way, it's good. I, I, I want to eat 
JC can go to the bullet diet section of the feast. And um, <laughs> if you don't know what that is, ask him. Butter. Mounds of butter. <laughs> Jesus will be on the other side with the wheat oh. and the. <laughs> but you'll be on your butter side. That's where the people barely crawled into the feast are. <laughs> I'm kidding. So there's this future feast. And guys, we're participating in it, which means as participators of the feast now, you're guaranteed entrance to that feast then. You're participating now, you get it then. And Brooke is not getting it. She's kidding. Oh. So, but I think that that's so uh, ironic, if you want to call it that, but not at all because it's totally planned, that at the feast Jesus is inaugurating, Isaiah says death will be gone when that feast starts. And Jesus is essentially telling them, I'm going to die. Here's the feast. And as he dies, he kills death. He rises from the dead and frees all of his people from the power of death. Awesome Awesome stuff, which we'll get to in the resurrection in a couple weeks to come. So, um, now that this feast hasn't come is clear from verse 29. He says that, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when the restored creation comes to this planet and we enter into not just restoration here with God, but restoration with all creation with God, a restoration of this planet, then we're going to have that feast with Christ himself. And the nations that accept him are coming too. So... That's what's going on here. That is communion and covenant. So as we come to the communion table, we are demonstrating an expression of this restoration with God by announcing we are the new exodus, we have the new covenant, we're partaking in that future feast when God will restore the earth to himself. So that's how we're expressing restoration. We're coming to the feast that announces it itself. So that's communion and covenant. Second is communion and community. So the Lord's Supper expresses our restoration with God by forming a community around Jesus. This means that as we take the Lord's Supper, something is happening amongst us that is trying to form community. You notice how Jesus says here in verse 27, towards the last part of it, he takes a cup and he says, drink of it, all of you. This is a communal event. All of you drink of this. Now, Paul picks up on this. In 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to read in your own time, there's a whole... Actually, go there. I haven't made you turn anywhere. I've been very nice. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. And you can actually stay there. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is what Paul says, essentially. I'm going to tell you what he's going to say, then we'll read it. He's essentially going to say that if, if taking the Lord's Supper does not result in community then you are taking it in an unworthy manner. If eating the Lord's Supper does not result in community, then we are taking it in an unworthy manner. We're, we're missing the point. We're getting it wrong. So, 
1 Corinthians 11.18 says this. When you guys come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Does that sound like a community? That sounds like a warring tribe of angry people. There are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Point here. There's divisions so that those not involved in division are the genuine believers. They're recognized. They're standing out. They're not partaking in division. They're partaking in community. And he continues, verse 20, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So here's here's the situation. Divisions, fighting, they come together, think they're having the Lord's Supper, and they're all eating on their own. And fighting and divided. Does that sound like community? No. So now this is what he says. Skip to 27. In the middle, he's just talking about what we just read in Matthew. In 27, he now interprets this. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink. What is he saying there? You're eating in an unworthy manner. What's the unworthy manner? He just told us in verse 18 through 20. The unworthy manner is being divided and not being a community. If when we come to eat the Lord's Supper, we are not finding community amongst ourselves We are eating in an unworthy manner. And Paul says, judge yourself now before you take the cracker and juice. Or they might have had a full-on feast in the early church. We maybe should go back to that. Examine yourself, Christian. Ask yourself as you come to the Lord's Supper, is this creating a bond between me and my brother, between me and my sister? Is this encouraging a community in tree of life? Or is this kind of just my thing, their thing? Is this causing me to reach out for one another? Questions to ask. And to help you answer these questions, let's look at what does, what does a community that's centering around the Lord's Supper look like? How do we know if we're that? What does it look like? I want to propose four characteristics that a community that centers around the Lord's Supper takes on. Four characteristics. What would it look like? Number one, a community that centers around the Lord's Supper has unity. It has unity. If we're coming to eat together... We ought to be seen together. And yes, we're seen together here. But this is not my point. I think that Tree of Life, as a community, ought to be seen together, not just on Sunday nights, not just at the conference center, but out and about. If we're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper... Why do we dismember when we're in the world? Why don't we take the Lord's Supper with us wherever we eat? That unity that the Lord's Supper brings us into. Guys, that's why I I encourage you guys every week. Come to 
hot shots after the study. That's where we're starting to put this community in practice. And we eat together. I mean, in a sense, you can bring the Lord's Supper wherever you eat. We're bringing the unity. We're being seen together. The community is happening. And extend it beyond Sunday night hot shots. Bring it to... I know I'm not talking to a lot of rimmers, but... Um, tell your rim friends. Bring it to rim. Bring it to the Christian school because half of those kids aren't Christians, as you might know. <laughs> Bring it to your other places of social environment. Tree of Life is not just in this building on Sunday night. Tree of Life is a community and a lifestyle. And we have to be seen together. So first characteristic, a community that's centered on the Lord's Supper has unity. Second It has identity. As we center on the Lord's Supper, we have identity, which we share with one another. This identity is that we collectively have found at the Lord's Supper, we have found our place in God's story. What does that place look like? It looks like the opposite of Adam. It looks like dependence upon Jesus for life. As we come to the Lord's Supper, guys, it is like coming to the tree of life itself. That act of faith, that demonstration of dependence, that this is where I get my life. Not in culture. This is where I get it. And as we're partaking in it, we're declaring that we're waiting for that eschatological, future, eternal, end time feast to be a part of us. That is our place in his story. We are restored, dependent upon Jesus' life, and we are awaiting his return in his kingdom and that future feast. That is our place in his story. Everything will be okay. You might be sudden turns you didn't expect, but as Jesus says at communion, it's my story. I've got it in control. I planned this. It's going to work out for the good. This is the identity that we share. We are people of the new covenant. The people of the new exodus. We have found restoration in something that lasts forever. Our relationship with God. And the restored creation is coming. That is our identity. And we share this story with one another. So, a community that centers on the Lord's Supper has unity. It has identity. And third, it has accountability. Listen, because I I kid not with this accountability business. If we're coming to the Lord's Supper as a community, and we're centering what Jesus did, and, and that feast, what you are doing, as you take of that feast and you eat, you are submitting yourself to the scrutiny of accountability. What does that mean? That means... That we recognize ourselves centered around Jesus. We are his temple. We are his priests. And if I see behavior that does not befit God's people, I'm calling it out. If you're eating from his supper. Because those who eat from his supper, we're the community and the body of Christ. And it is our job to guard the temple. To look for betrayers. To look for life that doesn't fit. To look for sin that ought not to be identified here. And for us to hold each other accountable. That's what community does. Community smells danger and warns the rest of the community. It protects. This is what Adam didn't do in the garden. 
He was to protect Eden from the sin and uncleanness. But when the serpent came in, his first sin wasn't eating from the fruit. His first sin was allowing the serpent to be there. He was supposed to protect the slimy, sinful, selfish serpents from creeping into the community. He didn't. Christian, if you see Stephen take communion, and Stephen is openly living in sin, it is our job as a community to confront him. Punch him in the face, JC says. So, if your dad gets mad, go to JC. By the way, if you look at 2620, this is what Jesus did at the Lord's Supper. He found sin and called it out. Look at 2620. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Why did I say 20? I don't know, but keep reading. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then verse 25. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said, You have said so. You see the example Jesus is setting? When we come to the Lord's Supper as a community, we hold the community in accountability. And if there's a betrayer, if there's sin, we call it out. It doesn't mean that you have to punch him in the face and leave him for dead and say, You're not worthy of tree of life. But it means that we confront and we ask, listen, if you take the Lord's Supper seriously, if you want to be part of this community, we cannot tolerate that consistent lifestyle. You must deal with that. And that's loving, Christian. That's saving a soul from hell. That's that's showing someone that you're a hypocrite and that that's not what's getting into the kingdom. This community, holding each other in accountability. So, I challenge you guys. Don't just take communion as like, my little time of Jesus, my cracker and juice. Like, that's important to worship Him. But open your eyes and watch who's eating it with you. Because they're officially announcing, I'm under the scrutiny of accountability as I eat this. Tree of life, please, please take Jesus' example and hold each other in check. And finally... The fourth characteristic of a community that centers around the Lord's Supper is equality. We've seen unity. We've seen identity. We've seen accountability. And finally is equality. There's inequality in our community. I saved this one for last because it's probably the hardest for us to view our community in equality. And... I propose that this was Jesus' most important point about the Lord's Supper. It's not in our text, Matthew 26. There's Mike. It comes from John 13. What happened in John 13? That was the Last Supper, John style. And Jesus surprised his disciples by serving them, washing their feet. He served them. He treated them with equality. And he said this to them. I'll read it to you. You listen. In John 13, 14. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So all who eat at the Lord's Supper are equal because all are equally depending upon the life we gain from it. (laughs) We're all equally exiled. I don't care if you're exiled like 100 miles or 100,000 bazillion miles, you're exiled. And we're all equally dependent upon God's grace to restore us. That's what happens at the Lord's Supper. We all admit there's no rank here. We all need Jesus just as desperately. Because any sin against an eternal being is an eternal sin. That's why all sin is equal. There's an equality. And we demonstrate this equality when we no longer look at ourselves as more important or other than you. But we begin to serve one another. That is the action of equality. Andrew serves me. You guys would say, well, duh, you're the pastor. You're important. No, we're equal. I will then serve Andrew. See the equality there as we serve each other. We recognize that there is one head over us. And that's the one whose table we eat at in the Lord's Supper. So Jesus said that as you do this service and equality amongst one another, you're actually using the Lord's Supper as an expression of restoration. He put it this way. A new commandment, right after he serves them, says you do the same. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Implication through serving each other. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, your love for one another, your service for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love, service for one another. Community at the Lord's Supper comes with equality. And by our service, coming at the Lord's Supper and serving, it's an expression to the nations that our restoration is real. Because it has changed us. We're no longer autonomous individuals, self-ruled individuals like Adam. Just little individuals coming together. Oh yeah, yeah, you're cool here, but then we all individually go away. Community is the reversal of the fall. It's the coming together around the same tree, the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and eating His supper. And when our community centers around the Lord's Supper, it will have unity, it will have a shared identity, it will have accountability, And it will have equality. And that will be the expression that restoration is real and has happened in this group. And the nations will have to choose. Believe it or leave it. But at least we have expressed in truth that restoration indeed has happened here. So Tree of Life, my encouragement to you guys. When we take the Lord's Supper, let's begin to think communally. That as we do so, we are to be doing so as individuals, but we're to begin to look at, you're eating the same thing I'm eating, and we're a group. We're a community. And as that happens, the Lord's Supper expresses salvation to the ends of the earth. Starting here. So Father, we ask for your unity to come and mold a community amongst us Give us courage to hold each other accountable and humility to be servants to one another in equality. And we do so by asking that your spirit would fall afresh on us. Your spirit would melt us 
Your spirit would mold us. Your spirit would fill us. And your spirit would use us. As an expression of restoration to all nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.